Hey everyone, another episode of iFreaks Show. Today with you, your host, Alex Bush. And today we have a very special guest, Mark Alpont. Did I say it right? You did. Great. So Mark, today we're going to talk uh, about Raspberry Pi and Swift with Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark gave a talk at Try Swift uh, last year about that. So Mark, uh, just give us a quick overview first, your experience, your background, and then what was the talk about? Sure. So as you said, my name is Mark Opont. Um, I've been essentially within the iOS realm since the start, just around the start of Swift. Um, I, before that, I was mainly working um, in the web space, specifically uh, working on ATMs and all of the uh, software that essentially drives an ATM. And so when you go up to a machine, you stick your card in and you see the buttons and you do some stuff. I was working, I designed and orchestrated all those screens to make that kind of stuff work. Um, I did that for uh, roughly about 12 years, Um, got tired of doing that and decided, okay, I want to try something new, something fun. Um, Had always been interested in mobile. Um, So I said, all right, Uh, I looked at Android. I didn't have enough RAM on my computer, so I switched to iOS. Um, (laughs) And I went from there and at the announcement of when Swift was announced, I remember watching the Dub Dub event and thinking to myself, like, "Well, this looks cool." Because um, I had seen Objective C, wasn't really too much of a fan. Um, it didn't necessarily initially grab me, um, even though I did. I had seen some C before and worked with it um, early on in college, type of thing. But uh, I saw Swift; it looked interesting, so I gave it a shot and. I've been kind of messing around with it ever since. With Headspin, optimize your mobile user experiences 24-7 for any application running on any device and any network anywhere in the world. Their AI-powered analyses track user experience metrics and KPIs over time from cold and warm starts to errors, crashes, and response times, and audio and video quality to biometric responsiveness. Headspin will automatically surface issues and the root cause information you need to optimize user experience for your product or service, providing actionable insights end-to-end across applications, devices, and networks. With the world's first global device cloud that uses thousands of real SIM-enabled devices on actual carrier and Wi-Fi networks in hundreds of locations around the globe with 100% uptime, keep your mobile user experiences ahead of the pack and achieve mobile success with a unified proactive approach to testing, performance monitoring, and user experience analytics only with Headspin. Learn more at headspin.io. So how'd you get to Raspberry Pi? That's so, usually a what uh, Elm type of people or, or um, what's that functional language everyone loves? Haskell. Haskell, yeah. Right? <laughs> So a Raspberry Pi for me, my first interaction with the Raspberry Pi was way back in the, man, uh, I call it XBMC days. So there's this like media platform or media software called XBMC. It used to be called XBMC. Now it's called Kodi. Um, and so back in the day, I had a nice little home theater set up, uh, set up and I just I wanted a a media platform that could kind of organize all of my local videos and things like that. And so um, one of the easiest computers to kind of get 
that software running up on was a Raspberry Pi. And so once I was introduced to it and realized, wait a second, this thing could do so much more than just run media centers. Like it's a little computer. It could, it could do anything you really want. And um, once I got familiar with the actual, uh, the actual platform and the size and noticed that, man, this thing comes in Pi Zero, it comes in Model 3. Like, it's just, it's so small, I can do anything with it. So um, that's really where my first introduction to the Raspberry Pi was um, years ago, um, well before I even started messing around with um, Swift. Um, just kind of, well, just around, probably around the same time, but just playing around with it and realizing that if this computer, if this device can do this much, I wonder what else it can do. And so really from there, I just, I chose to mess around with it. And I forget which talk, um, it might've been a talk that I was watching where I, someone mentioned the idea of running Swift on the Raspberry Pi. And I thought to myself, wait a second. Yeah. I was already kind of used to doing things like uh, like running a web server and using Node and um, setting up database and running Express and all those type of things. But like all that's JavaScript. You mean to tell me I can take the Swift language that I already like and run it on the same little device and do some things with it? I mean, that that pretty much was it for me. And that's where I really decided um, okay, let's let's open this envelope a little more and figure out what more can we do with it. And especially now since uh, Swift is <clears throat> can run on Linux, right? And right. Raspberry Pi, if I'm not mistaken, is a variation of Linux. Yes, the OS that you can run on them, yep. Mm -hmm. Right. So how does that process go, sort of, before you even start writing your app? You need to install, well, Swift at least, right, on your little Raspberry Pi. Is that a yes. com complicated process or nowadays everything's there's like a box or installer that does it for you? So there's not necessarily a box installer, but if you go to raspberrypi.org, like essentially the, the high level process is you download the um, Raspbian. Let's just say for, for in this particular case, if you're using the Raspbian OS, you essentially download Raspbian OS, you create a disk image out of it where that you place on a SD card. You slide that card into your um, Raspberry Pi, that gets the Raspbian OS on the Pi. So that's done. Now you have Raspbian, but you need to get Swift installed. Um, lucky for us, the Swift Arm Group has created a repository that you can essentially install the repo on your Pi and then essentially have that fetch the um, fetch Swift, get Swift installed. And for the most part, that's really all there is to it. All the work has already kind of been done for you. There were ways in, in the past that you would manually install it by essentially getting the files onto transferring the files from your computer to your Raspberry Pi via, via, um, SFTP or whatever file transfer you want to use. Um, and that was one way of doing it. Now you literally, you can go to the Swift arm, uh, groups website, um, really and essentially install the package on your Pi. Once that's installed and set, you have Swift running uh, enough to be able to run hello world at least. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really it. Now, the, the, the more interesting piece is while you can get swift on your pie, for most people, that's not really good enough. One, because you're working within, unless you're someone that loves Vim and Nano, you're essentially writing your Swift code in a text editor or a terminal. So for most people, that's not what they want. They want, they're used to Xcode. If I'm an iOS dev and I heard about this whole Swift on Raspberry Pi thing, well, I'm used to writing an Xcode. How can I write an Xcode? So that's where things become a little trickier because you can write your Swift code on your Mac, but you need to build it on Linux. So that's where there, that's where there's a little bit of work that needs to be done to essentially um, compile your code on the Linux machine so that it can be run and built on Linux and do what you need to do for it. And that's where there's a couple of steps where you can, there's a couple of libraries out there and scripts that you can essentially execute from Xcode to take your code that you've written in Xcode, build and compile on the Raspberry Pi and then run it. Mm-hmm. Is that the, the, the thing I saw when I was playing with uh, Vapor? Uh, so they, they had this in unit tests, they had this mm-hmm. like additional thing for Linux running the tests on Linux or something. A bunch of lots of little exceptions like that. I have not tested that specifically, although I, I did, um, I have gone the route of getting Vapor running on the Pi. Um, I'm not sure I've done specifically what you've, you've stated, but they do have, there are methods out there by essentially creating an, an external build system um, mm-hmm. via Xcode. You can use that to essentially say, all right, take this code that I just wrote here um, transfer first, copy it over to the pie, then build it. Now you could do those steps independently. You could figure out a way to copy your Swift files to the pie manually, SFTP, however you want to, then SSH into your pie, and then go to the directory, do Swift build, Swift run, and those commands would essentially build and uh, run your code on the pie. That, that's the manual way of doing it. The more automated way is using a script like um, Swish. Swish is a library that I've, I think I, I've mentioned both uh, that library in my blog post and talk that essentially lets you um, build, remotely build your uh, Swift package from Xcode to your Raspberry Pi. Um, I see. There's a couple of steps involved in between, but that's essentially what it does. Is is it conceptually sort of like um, Fastlane, where you say deploy and it kind of gets onto your device, which in this case is Raspberry Pi? Yes, it's conceptually that way, except even much more simple, because in this case, like you're literally just doing a copy. Like the Swish Mm -hmm. library, if you actually look at the, the Bash script, it's literally just doing a rsync between your computer and the Pi. You specify the IP address of the Pi, you specify the directory where you want it to go, and it literally syncs to your current directory to your destination on the Pi, and then builds and runs the code. Um, so it's fairly straightforward. Um, um, so I took it one step further and decided, well, since that script was written in Bash, and that's a whole nother, like language in itself, why not 
now that we can write scripts in Swift, why not write a Swift script that does the same exact thing um, and builds it remotely, which makes you know life so much easier when you're trying to build. So, mm -hmm. yeah, actually, <clears throat> sort of a side note, I've noticed lately uh, a lot of companies start to do, you know, those internal build tools or some utility mm -hmm. tools. Mm -hmm. And they started to write them in Swift, which I was pleasantly surprised at my last job. Instead of all the no JavaScript abominations that they usually have. <laughs> yeah, it's much different. Ah, but it's, it's more available now because Swift is becoming, um, because of Swift Package Manager, that has really opened up the, the door for using Swift in so many different ways, including building packages that essentially when you're running your your swift application or your swift program on the pi you're really just kind of executing a swift package in a lot of ways um, um because you build your program the same way you would build a swift package so so okay so what typically uh, raspberry pis are used for interacting with some sort of a device right mm -hmm. that, that could be the Raspberry Pi driving like a car, right? Or driving some rail or something, or right. getting input from a sensor and maybe right. then sending a message to some other device to do some action in the physical world, right? Mm -hmm. So that on the higher level conceptual, that's sort of pretty clear. That's a typical input output, very high level, right? Mm -hmm. But then how does technically that happen? So you have your Raspberry Pi, it's, turned on which means mm -hmm. the system boots so that's mm -hmm. a linux system mm -hmm. and after boots how do you have your swift code do anything <laughs> even if you have that app written right which is basically a command line app i'm my understanding right, right? Co correct so essentially the the main takeaway is that your um your swift code that you're writing is interacting with the uh, general purpose input output pins um, on the Raspberry Pi. So a majority of your code is generally going to be turn this pin on, turn that pin off, turn this on, turn that off. And it's literally just writing zeros and ones. And whatever external device you have connected to that, whether it be a stepper motor, whether it be a LCD, um, a fan, Generally, those the pins uh, output roughly a voltage of 3.3 volts. So think of it this way. Let's say I'm controlling a fan and I want to turn a fan on and off. For the most part, I'm either going to supply 3.3 volts to start rotating the fan, and then I'm going to supply zero volts to stop rotating the fan. And the way your Swift application does that is there are libraries. Um, like Swifty GPIO, which is a essentially library written to allow you to write Swift code that does some of this low level uh, bit manipulation that essentially makes this pin high, makes that pin low. You don't have to worry about the actual um, assembly code or low level C code that does drive those um, uh, pins. You could just essentially write Swift code that does that. And that's conceptually high level how all of that comes together. Okay. So, so it's, um, 
I guess it's not close in terms of API. It's not it does not resemble a Bluetooth BLE framework that Apple has, for example, with a bunch of delegate implementation and you sub declare yourself no. a delegate, you know, get no. a protocol callbacks, things like that. No, uh, the Swifty GPIO library makes that that easy for you because mm -hmm. essentially you just you create a instance of a GPIO based on the type of board that you're using. So it might be a ras Raspberry Pi model uh, three, a Raspberry Pi zero, three B, three plus. Um, once you create one of those, you literally specify what pin for the most part, generally speaking. What pin do you want to interact with? Um, what, what direction is that pin? Is it going to be an input pin or an output pin? And what value do you want that pin to be? So let's say, for example, I have something, a wire connected at pin 18. All right. Is that an output pin or an input pin? Okay. It's output. Cool. Once you've specified that it's an output, what's its current value? Is it a zero or is it a one? And it's literally that simple. Once you've specified that, the trick then becomes based on the component that you're working with, right? A stepper motor, a uh, integrated uh, chip, or whatever it may be, right? Based on the, the data sheet for that specific component, what does it require? Well, one, let's say if you want to drive a motor, um, there are specific chips or motor controllers that have, for example, the L298N is the modal controller that I used in my talk. And essentially, it has a data sheet that says, if you want to spin a motor or enable motor A, supply 5.5 volts to these two pins, right? So if you know you need to supply 5.5 or 5 volts or 3.3 volts, then it's a matter of which pin is this connected into? What direction does it go? And is it zero or is it one? Mm -hmm. And just by knowing that information, you know everything you need to know to make that motor turn on or turn off. Or instead of, I wouldn't say even turn on, turn off, more spin forward or spin backward or stop. Because essentially right. with motors, using the motor as an example, you're, you're just reversing polarity. You're either supplying a voltage in one direction or you're supplying it in the other direction. Jeez, that's too much science for me. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, failed my electronics class. It, so. <laughs> well, that, that's actually part of what got me interested in this. I was, um, I, I, I took a lot of uh, like electronic engineering courses mm. um, in college. And so I started off messing around with like logical AND gates and digital ANDs and, and uh, assembly code and doing things like that, which was cool back then, but it didn't pull me in like Swift did. So I actually, wow. I really hated programming back in the day. And then Swift was actually what brought me back to the fold. <laughs> um, but messing around with that is what kind of allowed me to kind of bridge the gap where like now I can use the Swift that I like with the hardware that I'm also interested in and kind of merge the two. And that's what Raspberry Pi makes so easy. It makes it so easy to have, let's say you have an idea and I want to, I'm, I'm very big into like home automation and things like that. 
And I want to create some sort of automatic door opener or door closer, right? And let's just say in order to do this thing, you need some sort of a motor that sits at the top of a door that has an arm that either pushes the door or pulls the door. Well, you could build this thing using a Raspberry Pi, a motor and a motor controller and essentially just say when the door is in this particular state or maybe you even take it one step further and you build an iOS app that communicates with set pie and says, when I hit this button, turn the motor on, which closes the door. And when I hit the other button, turn the, other, the motor the opposite direction, which opens the door. And now you've created a, a automated door using a Raspberry Pi and Swift. Like that's, that's one use case of being able to take the knowledge that you already have as a Mac developer or uh, iOS, iPhone, whatever, and leveraging hardware with that. You don't have to know the low level C things of what, you know, what voltage to supply and which address to write to. The Swifty GPIO does all of that for you. You just need to know what pin do I connect it to? What's the direction of the pin? What's the value of the pin? And that's it. Hey folks, are you trying to figure out how to stay current? Maybe you're wondering what's gonna come out during WWDC and you'd like to watch it with some of the other developers out there in the world. Well, I'm putting on iOS Dev Remote Conf. That's at iosremoteconf.com. A few years ago, my dad was just in a position where he needed me around a lot more than I could be. And so I couldn't travel to all the conferences that I wanted to go to. And so I started doing these remote conferences. And then it turned out that we had the COVID-19 thing hit and people couldn't travel or weren't willing to risk it now. So you can come out, you can stay current. Um, we're gonna have a WWDC watch party. We've got some great people coming to speak like Uncle Bob Martin, Ray Wenderlich, Alex and Sujin from the iFreak show. So definitely come check it out. You can go get tickets at iosremoteconf.com. Uh, that's iosremoteconf.com. Yeah, that actually sounds appealing to me even. And again, I, I'm one of those people who are, I, I fight every time when people, when people call us engineers. I'm like, I don't engineer anything. Engineer. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? Right. Uh, okay, that's, uh, that, that makes sense. Uh, do you, is, is Swift's strongly typed system useful in any regard for this specific problem? Or it's a bit more too low level so you don't really utilize it i wouldn't i haven't not necessarily i mean so let's say when i was creating my led program um, being able to use um swift actually makes things the same reason why folks love the whole type safes type language um, that can become very useful when you are dealing with uh, certain APIs that do require, some of the APIs are still stringly based or stringly typed where like, for example, in Swifty GPIO, you have to specify your, your pins can be specified via string. So like pin mm. 17 or pin 16. So there's still those sort of things that you have to deal with. But outside of that, and I, now that I think one of the latest updates might've made it to where that like, essentially the, the pin values are in an enum 
And you could say, you know, dot P16, dot P12, dot P11, based on the type of board that you've input, if I'm not mistaken. Um, So the string, uh, having a strong type system actually helps in that regard, because in most cases, when you're working with lower level things, most of those older CAPIs are going to be string based. And um, that's going to be much more error prone. Um, But... Once again, I, I can't speak highly enough about the Swifty GPIO library because it literally does a lot of the heavy lifting for you. So you don't have to think about that. You just have to, like I stated before, what pin, what direction, what value? It's literally that simple. And then where it becomes more complex is where you start combining things, right? So now I'm not just speaking to one pin. I'm speaking, to, I'm, I'm interacting with multiple pins at once. For, the, for, the exa- for example, when rotating a motor, it, I might have to set two pins to zero and um, two pins to one. And that's what applies the necessary voltage to rotate it counterclockwise. And then I supply the other, I reverse that. Set these two to one, set these other two to zero, and that reverses it. So there's that sort of thing. So uh, let, let's go back a little back to how when you launch your Raspberry Pi, how do you have your app, your, well, yeah, your, your app's main function launch, right? And, I, and I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, there's got to be a while loop, roughly speaking, somewhere yes, to wait yes. for the inputs from yes. whatever devices you have or maybe, well, yeah, even if the user interacts with that, with that thing, it's going to be through some input, right? Yes. So that depends on whether or not you want the, you can have essentially, um, like you stated, a while loop that is waiting for the user, um, waiting for this particular pin to go high or this particular pin to go low, which triggers another series of functions. Or, um, for example, I never necessarily have it to where that once my Pi boots up, my program automatically starts. I'm mm-hmm. sure there's probably ways to do that. But for the most part, like, depending on the application that you're using it for, uh, once, you, once I boot up my Pi and I execute my application, it's running until I quit it. So there is a manual process of like, all right, now my Pi's booted up. Let me um, navigate to whatever directory I want to navigate to and hit Swift run or Swift build, which actually compiles, builds the code and runs it. Um, Now, to your point, automating it to where that it happens on boot, I don't think I've done that quite yet. And that it's not a far-fetched thing to do. I just haven't done it. So I'm thinking, you know, I build a robot of sorts and I give it to my mom. I just want to right. press a button. <laughs> right. right, right. Um, so y- you could, this is where scripting comes into play. So if you wanted to do something like that, you could have a robot where the application, let's say, for example, is not running and via the press of a button, well, I, you need the application to be running to even listen for the button press. Uh, right. So. so so I guess my thinking there, and I, I'm sure Linux has something like that. It has mm-hmm. like these hooks to launch something on boot. Right. So probably it, 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 the button in this case would be just to power up the whole thing. 
And then if you have that set up to be automatically launch your Swift app, that's probably doable, right? Yes, that's definitely doable. Um, I think it's it something like that. I I, I've, I haven't done it myself, but I've come across different applications where there were things like that running. I mean, if you really think about it, there are a lot of devices, especially in the home automation sector, that are literally Raspberry Pis underneath the hood running some sort of custom software that they're now calling, you know, the devices called some sort of bridge, but all it is is a Raspberry Pi with some custom software on it, and that's that. So it's definitely possible. I just myself haven't done it directly. What's the, what are the physical sort of limitations? Let's say, what if I want to have a little car that drives around mm-hmm. and it has a camera on top of it and I want to mm-hmm. stream the video or something? Mm-hmm. So th- that's certainly possible. That's actually very similar to the project that I used for the, my talk at TriSwift um, NYC. Um, I built a little robotic car called the TriBot Model 3. And it literally was a little plastic car with a Raspberry Pi Zero sitting on top. I had a Raspberry Pi Zero, a um, a battery pack that you would use to like charge your phone. I was using that to power the Pi or the power, yeah, power the Pi. And I had a little L298N uh, motor controller uh, sitting on top. So that drove my motors and the Raspberry Pi was just running a simple script that I wrote that was uh, work listening to a vape app that I wrote via vapor, which was essentially changing every, if I wanted to go forward, I would just write to a specific path that would turn these motors, uh, uh, turn the motor forward. I would write then like make essentially think of it like a website where I would be, I would say, you know, my application slash one drives motor forward. Uh, uh, application slash two is backward slash three and just essentially a bunch of paths that execute where, so the vapor server is running on my Pi. Okay, I was about to ask. Mm-hmm. Exa- yes. So it's running on the Pi and it's just essentially listening for these particular paths that execute another bit of Swift code. Um, that, where did they, they come from though? Those where, paths? Like who, 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 who launches each one of the paths? So I have um, on, my, on my actual iOS app, uh-huh. I have, um, I'm essentially, every button press is... Making a get call or a post. It, it, exactly, exactly. To, to you could that, do get or post, either or. So it's making a call to that Vapor server, which is running on Raspberry Pi, and then under the hood, it sends a message to... Uh, the motors. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, how's the connection between... How do you, from your iOS app, how do you send a message to that server? So it's through local network. So I guess Raspberry Pi has a Wi-Fi then? Correct. Raspberry Pi has Wi-Fi. You get it on the, um, I, I did it locally, but if you, um, one of the more, one of the methods is using um, MQTT, which is essentially a simple lightweight protocol that lets you send messages back similar to Bluetooth. I feel like it's one level removed from Bluetooth. 
mm-hmm. um, probably simpler to implement than the Bluetooth delegates and things that you can that you could do with Bluetooth, um, uh, low, low low energy Bluetooth at that. Um, but so you could use MQTT to essentially listen and do things that way, um, or you could do it from a vapor perspective and communicate via Wi-Fi. It all depends on like the level of complexity that you want. Um, I was very, I was pretty much able to get it do I, my particular example ran via uh, Wi-Fi, but I was experimenting with trying to do it via MQTT. The only reason I kind of left that out of my talk is MQTT at the moment, um, the library that is the most popular one is written in Python. And I was really trying to keep everything as Swift focused as possible to like prove the fact that you can do it in Swift, but there isn't necessarily a Swift wrapper yet. Or if there is, the one that I saw out there didn't necessarily work well for me. Now that was a while back. The chances are there's probably one out there now. Um, but that, that was the difference maker for me, being that I didn't necessarily have a, a very simple way to do it all Swift. I kind of kept the MQTT out of there and just kind of went the vapor web route, which was kind of a little tricky because then it's like, you know, I'm using like a web server to make, you know, pass mm-hmm. messages back and forth. Is that proper use of that? It, you know, that kind of thing. So, I see. <clears throat> yeah, because you had to have it as a receiver. Yes. Basically, that's your API protocol, which at the same time kind of makes sense too. You just, it's not a server. It's a it's little exactly. car. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So uh, yeah, it's almost like uh, telling your Tesla to go forward by sending a message to a, a well web server, right? right. <laughs> On the car, right? So it's local, right. but still a web server. Kind of funny. Yep. I- I'm curious about this sort of use case. Mm-hmm. So so home automation is one practical uh, application. Yes, of and sort of most obvious, if you will, right? That's what mm-hmm. people usually go for. I'm thinking, so my friends, they run escape rooms. Mm-hmm. If you know what those are, it's like yes, you basically lock, locked in, in a room or two and you have to solve puzzles to get out. I mean, you can always get out, so, <laughs> but it's, that's the game, right? And you either right. rarely play it by yourself, usually it's a group of people. Right. Uh, very entertaining if it's well done. Uh, and a lot of them, there's a trend and they have this whole kind of gra- gradations, if you will, of like low level or level zero type of puzzles where they're all mechanical. Then mm-hmm. level one and level two, they're more electronical. And then level three, you're like, it's super complex, maybe like VR or something, something mm-hmm. like that. And, and I probably butchered the levels. But uh, the one of the electronic levels they have those effectively what they have is a bunch of devices all interconnected as far as I understand mm-hmm. that, that have that input output. And maybe there's um, a sensor that, and when you solve a puzzle, something gets moved out of it. So now mm-hmm. it sends a different signal. So then the system can decide, Oh, well now since that flip bit is flipped, I can unlock a door somewhere or a lock or something like that so that the game progresses. Mm-hmm. So what they do have, though, it's not just one kind of thing. It's a lot of multiple inputs, outputs. 
and then there's there's some well program that coordinates all of it and i know they usually write them in some obscure low level pascal something crazy language right. like that which is right. basically they're like almost literally flipping like zeros and ones maybe like 16 bit instead one level up right but still it felt too crazy oh, oh yeah yeah and that's there's uh, one code base that i saw was a lot of go-to's like literal mm-hmm. go-to state. I have not seen a go-to statement since, since like a sophomore year in college <laughs> or something. Uh, and it does work though. Right. So what I'm wondering, how such a system could be built using one or many Raspberry Pis with Swift? How would you sort of conceptually go about it? So I can certainly see a system like that um, the, the biggest piece is really the inter-device communications. Um, if you're not having the devices directly communicate with each other, um, I can certainly see where you have each device communicate with one master server of some sort that essentially is continuously reporting its state and that particular program is making decisions based on the state of each device, such as the user just, the part of the puzzle was to unlock this door, right? And when you remove the door, there's a motion sensor there that you know triggers this, which you know, in a lot of cases, this is the same exact thing that has been solved in the home automation realm, that where you can essentially trigger automations or scenes based on device state. That's literally home automation in a nutshell. So for example, like in my home, I have uh, several motion sensors that also double as like humidity, temperature, light sensors that can determine presence, right? Whether someone's home, not home, in a room, not in a room. And based on that and other outside of events, I could say, okay, if this sensor has not detected motion in five minutes, no one's in the room, shut the lights off, which is a very common routine for me because I have little children and they no, have no concept of electric bills and, and, <laughs> and lights. So they just leave lights on and they just walk out the room and it's whatever. Um, so using sensors to trigger automations like is a very common way to do that. And so even in the process of doing that, you have some sort of system or software that is like the brains of the operation. In my particular case, I'm using Home Assistant, which is a open source um, uh, application that essentially runs on the Ras- can run on our Raspberry Pi that listens to a whole bunch of sensors and runs automations and triggers based on the states of those sensors. So I'm even thinking, even if you were to do it at a higher level to proof of concept, whether or not you could do it, like you could do it on a home automation level and then lower it down to specifically doing it where like, instead of running an application like Home Assistant, you have a script running in Swift that is listening to input from multiple Raspberry Pis and making some decisions based on that. And how you get them all interconnected could be via Bluetooth, 
It could be via web service. I mean, there's a couple of options there, but. I think they usually wire. There's like a wire going from that central computer to each one of the units. So you could, you could probably connect them in serial uh, or in parallel that way, where essentially you go from one GPIO, make that from one input of, that's actually a good point, um, output of one pin to the input of another pin, and then kind of daisy chain them that way. Because the Raspberry Pi already has the GPIO pins on them. And mm -hmm. as I stated before, when interacting with those pins, you have to determine what's the direction of the pin in, in or out, what's the value of it. So I can essentially make the output of this pin the input of the next Raspberry Pi's pin and then output on another one and input and just kind of daisy chain them that way. Um, Is that because physically you have a limited number of input hooks, if you will, I don't know the terminology there, on the Raspberry Pi device for each one you, of them? Yes. So you only have, I believe, I don't have it directly in front of me, but it's maybe 40 some odd pins. And even of those 40 pins, um, only uh, a portion of them are used for general purpose input output. The other mm. ones are like power, um, uh, UART connection, um, things of that nature. Um, so you can't, they're not all just exposed pins that mm -hmm. you do general purpose stuff with, if that makes sense. I see. I guess now I realize, because now I remember, I think usually they have an actual desktop computer for that. You could. I mean, I, I, I could but certainly then, But see. then why would you? Hmm. Because the only advantage there, well, more inputs and more hardware stuff, right, to mm -hmm. plug into. And I guess you kind of have that, the interface of, well, Linux or whatever you run on that desktop to the, your app, uh, your um, escape room app mm -hmm, logic, mm -hmm. if you will, mm -hmm. right? But then, yeah, do you need that? Like, if you're really careful with your code, with your script, you can just mm -hmm. have that Raspberry Pi or something, or maybe even something slightly bigger than just Raspberry Pi. Mm. I think you could, I think the, the tricky piece is where you start connecting them all together. Right. Individually doing things is definitely doable because there's a lot of, there, there are a multitude of sensors out there that you can buy that literally just, in order for the sensor to work, it usually just requires some sort of voltage and probably has some sort of pin that it's, that's its output pin. And maybe it outputs a value from zero to one to determine whether or not it's on, or it, it outputs some sort of, um, it takes in a pulse width modulation uh, sort of thing where it's like essentially a pulse that you can fire over a certain amount of time. Um, and because that's literally how the, um, the ultrasonic sensors work is you have a, uh, you have two pins that essentially provide your ground and your, your plus five volts. And then one pin is your transmission pin that essentially transmits a signal and listens for a signal to come back. And then based on the delta of that, you can determine how far something is based on how long it takes for that signal to come back. Um, and you measure that in SWIFT, which is what we did in the workshop. We, we measured... Um, we essentially fired a output every 
0.1 milliseconds and waited for the time that it took for it to get back to determine how far an object is. And essentially, whatever that value is, we set a range to say, if the value comes back between zero and one, turn on the red LED. If the value comes back between zero or one and two, turn on yellow. If it comes between, if it's greater than three, then it's green, which essentially means object is far away enough, object is getting close, object is too close. Hmm. So you can take that same concept and do whatever you want with it. It, it. it all depends on the actual sensor itself, whether that be a motion sensor, ultrasonic sensor, uh, a button, magnetic sense, whatever. I mean, the sky's the limit when it comes to that, right? The only thing you care about is what's its input, what's its output, and which pins do I connect it to? Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. Yeah, in that regard, building those apps, <clears throat> conceptual is not like kind of what I kept telling over the years. Conceptual is not different from any other app, really. It's not. You, you, input, output, your UI is different, right? Your, you get your data. UI, yes, but your UI is just a representation, generally speaking, of the state of the sensor. And then like you have some sort of button or some, some sort of input on your side that says, all right, um, send this value to this, device, uh, to this pin. Right. Send a zero or send a one by pressing a button or by, by flipping a toggle switch or whatever you want to do. Um, it's, can, once you get past the cruft of setting things up, it's actually fairly easy to do things because it's, it's either zero or it's one. Wow. <laughs> That's, with the exception of some devices that, like I said, require um, a, a more continuous, more, a more analog signal. And even then you have analog to digital converters that you can use with the Pi to take what is a analog input and make it digital um, and do things like that and vice versa, digital to analog converters. Um, so there's a couple of options there. Right. Okay. So last thing before we wrap up, sure. how to get started. And we kind of covered that and you talked about it, but again, to reiterate, so there is this uh, Swifty GPIO, which I, mm -hmm. I will have link in the show notes. So that, that's, that's one uh, Swift package or Swift library that, that you would want to use. Mm -hmm. what, what else do you need to get started? So um, I, not to necessarily plug myself, but I, I wrote a blog post um, that uh, essentially puts the zero to one of how to get started, um, which I'm sure we'll, we'll include in the show notes, mm -hmm. but it's essentially everything necessary. It, it's a breakdown of my um, 
Well, I have, um, I have a blog coming. That's essentially a breakdown of the workshop, which the, the, the workshop is where we went from zero to hero um, with here's the parts that you need. Here are the, uh, um, here's how you install Swift. Here's how you install, here's how you set up your Xcode environment. Here's how you set up your external build system. And that is a blog post that is in the works that will be out soon. However, I do have a blog post just simply on how to install Swift on a Raspberry Pi um, that walks you through that, those steps. And with that, you could start experimenting at least with running a basic Swift application on the Pi that does something. Maybe it's a command line application. Maybe it makes use of a, a I don't know, like a GitHub API or makes use of some sort of API to crunch some data and return a result to you. Um, the next level of that is when you start taking that Swift code that does some things and start interacting with hardware. Um, yep, that's the one. So once you start interacting with hardware, that's where things kind of become, that's where the fun happens. Because then you start thinking, well, if I can control this device, what else can I control? And, and once you understand the concept of this particular device requires five volts and a ground, okay? How do I supply the five volts and where do I connect the ground? If you can get past that, then now it's just a matter of, okay, when I want the device to turn on, I set it to a one. When I want it to turn off, I set it to a zero. Um, and literally in Swift code, that's literally pin 17 dot value equals zero sort of thing. The, using the Jeep Swifty GPIO library. Um, so once you understand that concept, then now it's like, okay, I want these two things to turn on while this is off. So you can write Swift code that says if pin 17 dot value equals one and you know, that sort of thing, go on and on and on. Um, and that's literally it. Um, it's, it's literally that straightforward. Once you start playing with it, the, the hardest part is the, is the setup, right? The getting Swift install and then being able to write your code in Xcode and build and compile it on the Raspberry Pi. Once you get past that, then the rest of it's your Swift knowledge at that point. Right. Well, yeah, that, that's pretty sweet, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. great. Once I started messing with it, I couldn't stop because I'm thinking to myself, like I said, I, I already use it. Um, I, I use a Raspberry Pi myself in multiple cases at home. I have it running my, the home assistant that I, I mentioned before, um, that's running on a Raspberry Pi at my home and that's literally managing a good portion of my um, home automation devices. And the beauty with that is um, I mostly have a lot of um, Apple devices at home as in MacBook, iPhone type thing, Apple TV. And so I chose to go the Siri route for controlling items in my home. Like, hey, such and such, turn off my lights. Hey, such and such, unlock my door, um, right? So not every device on the market is HomeKit compatible. Now HomeKit is the Apple platform for like home automation devices. 
What being able to run Home Assistant on a Raspberry Pi does is it allows me to take devices that are not natively supported by HomeKit and expose them to HomeKit so that I can say, hey, such and such, turn on the light, you know, and it turns on the light, um, even if it's not necessarily a HomeKit device. So then that's all running on the Raspberry Pi. Very low energy, very low noise, can fit on a bookshelf somewhere as long as you supply power to it. Um, I happen to be using a Cat5 connection to my Pi, but most of them come with um, Wi-Fi uh, chips built in so that you can connect it to Wi-Fi. And literally, if you, can, if you can even find a way to supply enough voltage using solar, you could probably plug this thing up to a solar battery and be out of your way. And it's just running without any interaction whatsoever. Considering the form factor, right? A Raspberry Pi is roughly the size of a credit card. A Raspberry Pi Zero is roughly the size of a USB thumbstick. So imagine the things you could do Bitcoin with Swift. mining. <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoin mine. Well, it's probably not powerful enough. You could probably, probably chain multiple Pis together to try to do something I just like got that. excited with the solar battery part where it's like infinitive, sort of almost. Effectively. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Just the hardware tear, wear and tear. Imagine, I'll give you this one little thing that I found online that I thought was interesting. I found a, a program that essentially lets you brute force attack people's Wi-Fi networks. Um, and just as a use case, imagine that you have a Raspberry Pi Zero that is the size of a thumb drive that is in your pocket that's connected to a battery pack that you use to charge your phone and you're literally walking around brute force attacking people's networks. <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying you should do it. I'm I mean, simply... if you're in an airport and you don't have your tethering working <laughs> and other people tether. I'm, I'm just saying. The Raspberry Pi is that kind of powerful of a device where you could literally have a script that is running, doing this sort of thing in your pocket, which is essentially kind of what our phones are doing on a mega level. But mm -hmm. this is a small, inexpensive device that you can run Swift on. And anything that you think you could do with Swift, you can now do on this device while also controlling hardware. I mean, that, uh, if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know. What, I mean, there's a lot of options there considering um, the fact that for a lot of us, we thought that our Swift knowledge would be locked into the ecosystem of doing things on Apple devices. Well, this is where essentially, which was essentially the, the, the gist of my talk, um, using Swift without screens. Um, powering connected devices. So you can literally um, run the Swift knowledge that you already have on devices that automate things around you. Um, whether that be, um, for example, I started, there's a really cool project online called Magic Mirror. And what Magic Mirror is, is it's a, think of a, uh, a monitor, right? That has a two-way mirror on it that where the uh, when you're looking one direction, you can't see the monitor, but 
the monitor's light shines through um, kind of thing. And imagine that a uh, mirror that you wake up in the morning that has your schedule, your appointments for the day, the weather and everything all in a mirror that um, essentially is running a Raspberry Pi that's downloading some information from some API like, like Dark Sky or whoever, whatever you want to you know, use and displays this real time information with, like I said, the form factor of a credit card or a thumb drive. Now you essentially have a all-in-one smart mirror that can list for you. It may not be meeting information. Maybe it's like the train times. When, when's the next train coming? Um, how many APIs out there already exist that can give you that kind of information that you can use yourself? I just wanted to show my stock prices, how much it dropped. <laughs> <laughs> of course, if you're looking for a cry, right, then yes. Yeah. <laughs> Every morning has got to be cruel and brutal. Cruel and brutal. Um, but those just, that's just another idea of using a device so powerful with the knowledge that you already have as, as an iOS or Mac or tvOS, whatever, um, uh, a developer in the Apple ecosystem to develop on a device that isn't an Apple device. That, that to me opens up the doors for all sorts of possibility, um, creativity. Um, and luckily for most of us, uh, I'd specifically speak to like folks like myself, I iOS dev, um, a lot of these projects have already been done in Node and JavaScript, right? And you could literally convert them from JS to Swift and have the same sort of thing except running in Swift. So that's kind of where I started, where I literally started looking at ideas of what projects already exist out there like Magic Mirror that is a Node project and how can I use my Swift knowledge to build a Magic Mirror that is running Swift code that the Swift community can then create different components. So maybe I create the basic component, but Alex Bush creates the date component and someone else comes and creates like a train time component. And we all kind of put it together in a Swift UI like fashion where we just kind of append these views together. And now you have this smart mirror running on a Raspberry Pi with Swift. I'm just throwing it out there. Whoever's listening and wants to take that idea, run with it. I think it's certainly something I've been kind of thinking about because the ideas are already out there. Um, we're already using Swift in so many different ways to create UI. And now with the introduction of Combine, we have these nice ways of being able to kind of listen to a react to state in a way that we haven't necessarily done it before. Um, there's some opportunities here. Just throwing it out there. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Well, let's wrap up uh, here. Uh, so we tips. We have tips. Do you have any anything for us, Mark? I mean, besides all of the Raspberry Pi goodies. Raspberry Pi. Tips, picks? Yeah. Tips and yeah. picks. So for me, I guess from a pick perspective, completely random, um, I, I've been watching this show on Netflix called Ozark, um, which is a very interesting kind of, I don't even know how I would describe it. If it's a drama or it's 
it's not really a comedy, but it's just interesting. Um, and so like it was off for a long time and it finally just came back. And now that we're in this wonderful quarantine time, if I'm not busy doing kid homework or writing code for a PR, I'm watching, catching up on shows. And so that's one of my um, favorites that I'm currently watching, which is kind of interesting. Um, so if you haven't checked it out, it's on Netflix. It's a great show with all kinds of, the premise of it is this uh, guy who essentially it, it starts off doing a clean business, gets involved in like money laundering and drugs. And it's like lots of gore, drug, drug-induced violence. I don't know how I would call it, but it's, it's an interesting show because it's not necessarily set like as like a, a uh, violent show, but more so of a guy who gets caught up with the wrong people and ends up having to support a lifestyle with his family that every second he turns around, it's like, oh my God, how am I going to get past the feds to do this? So on and so forth. So check it out. Yeah. Uh, good stuff. <laughs> so for me, uh, my, I have two picks. Uh, thriftbooks.com. That's a fantastic website. I think that's, I, th I assume, I'm probably wrong, but I assume that's how Amazon used to be, where it was only mm. books. Uh, basically, they sell only, well, maybe not only, but mostly used books. Oh. Take everything and anything, uh, used previous editions, things like that. They're very cheap. And what I realized for myself, I used to buy books like brand new all the time. What I realized, I actually like used ones more. Not because of the price, which is, yes, great as well. You save money. I just like the old paper more. Mm -hmm. it, has, yeah. it has some <laughs> character to it, if you will. Right. Uh, it's fantastic. And one of the latest books that I got, it's a classic by, uh, what's the author? So the name is uh, Around the World in 80 Days. Ooh. It's uh, Julius, Julius Verne, Verne. I don't even know how to pronounce the, the author's name mm -hmm. but as far as i remember that's a very classic very like one of those in everyone everyone's library right and it's turned i never read it turns out to be a very small book actually it's like a tiny little thing and maybe like 200 pages top but really small pages mm -hmm. i love it i watched uh the movie based on the book 1950s movie lately it's also very interesting to see how they used to make movies before mm -hmm. where there's no CGI, there's nothing, it's just, it's all real, actually. <laughs> uh, so I really like the, the, the movie and now I'm reading the book and it's pretty close. Also surprising thing. Usually nowadays they'll have a movie based on the book, mm -hmm. but it's, nowhere near the book it's like it's just the idea maybe maybe right uh but this one is pretty pretty accurate down to like phrases they used and what what the character said wow that's pretty cool yeah so that's my pick all right mark uh thank you thank you again for coming and uh we'll yeah we'll probably have this episode in a few weeks out sure um but yeah uh, Alex out. Wow, thanks. Thanks for having me. 
Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.